Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 288. Of the podcast, it is Swooping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Tuesday, September 1st, 2020, people. I cannot believe that we have reached September. It feels like it was just yesterday. I was in Vegas for the Pac-12 tournament. Many of you in Nashville for the SEC tournament or in Indianapolis for the Big Ten tournament. We're all watching games. We're all wondering, is the NCAA tournament going to get played? Is there going to be fans? Is it going to get canceled? It feels like that was just yesterday, but we have survived April, May, June, July, and now August. We have reached uh, September. And we have reached college football season. We had a game last weekend and plenty to get into today. I should mention, by the way, we are officially at the point where you can just expect three episodes of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast every week. There was a moment in time where I wanted to do this, then I was hesitant because I didn't think we were going to get football, but it very much feels like football is on its way. Football is on its way. Football happened last weekend. It's going to happen this weekend, and it's really going to get ramped up in the coming weeks. And so expect three episodes a week. Uh, I would guess probably this Monday, Tuesday, Thursday schedule works really well. Maybe we eventually switch to Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, but plan on three episodes of Torres every week. And by the way, I appreciate all your guys' support. The numbers continue to grow up, uh, grow up, go up. The numbers continue to get bigger and bigger every single week. And so I do appreciate your support. And I do appreciate the fact that we have essentially hit a moment in time where you are going to get three episodes of Torres a week. Here's a rundown very quickly of today's show, because there is a lot to get into in an and in a limited amount of time. Uh, Four big topics I want to hit on. I'm going to kind of hit them very quickly. First, we are going to continue our look at as the Big Ten turns because two things happen in the Big Ten on Monday. Every day there are headlines in this conference. Continues to make the league look bad, and I'm going to explain to you why. It's just over. There's just no more debate about the Big Ten that they they made the right decision or it was what. like, Like, it's over. They made the wrong decision. They rushed into it. 
And we got, I think, a very important piece of information to prove that on Monday. I will explain that. Uh, a very interesting, by the way, Dabo Sweeney to the NFL rumor popped up Monday. We will hit on that very quick. Then two quick college basketball topics for the second time in two episodes. Uh, I will talk about the passing of a legend. On Monday's show, it was Lute Olson. On today's show, it will be John Thompson, who, of course, was the legendary coach at Georgetown. And I'll wrap with a little college hoops kind of insider nerdy stuff. As Jay Lucas, one of the top assistants in college basketball, ends up at Kentucky a few weeks ago when Arkansas made a mega hire in the assistant recruiting uh, circuit. I mentioned that. I do, did want to talk about that. So I will talk about Jay Lucas very quickly. And then on the back end, as promised, I told you yesterday that um, in a world where we've unfortunately really lost two college basketball legends in the last couple weeks, uh, one legend is, is joining the show. Oh, and frankly, has a lot to say. Really fun interview with former Georgia Tech head coach Bobby Kremens. For those of you who are of a certain age, Georgia Tech was really good in the 80s, really good in the early to mid-90s. They made the 1990 Final Four. And so, uh, you know, I think a fun interview that you guys will enjoy. He will talk about the glory days of the ACC, coaching against uh, Dean Smith and, and Coach K, coaching against Jerry Tarkanian in a Final Four, recruiting Kenny Anderson. Just a really fun interview. Uh, and again, especially in losing the guys that we lost throughout this week, I think it'll be fun to, to just have some positive college hoops news and what has been a tough couple weeks with the passing of John Thompson, Lute Olson, obviously Eddie Sutton earlier this summer. All right, a lot to get into, so I don't want to take up too much time here off the top. Before we get started, I want to remind you, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, where you listen, what you like about the show, all those sorts of things. You can rate us on, obviously, any of the platforms, including iTunes. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres, and I probably should mention here, in the coming weeks, I will be starting a uh, specific Twitter page for this show, so good content coming out of this show, uh, YouTube videos, all that kind of stuff, so I will be starting a Twitter page here in the coming weeks uh, for this show specifically. Also on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram, Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com if you ever have a question for this show. Uh, and finally, as I've mentioned a few times now, uh, I am on Cameo. It is a really cool service in which you can reach out to me for customized, personalized videos that you can give to a friend, you can give to a mother or a dad, a, a mother or father, excuse me. I guess mother and dad, I guess dad and father are the same thing. Neither here nor there. Uh, you can also, obviously, husband, wife, brother, sister, whatever. So cameo.com slash Aaron underscore Torres. Hit me up for details there. And like I said, lot to get to. Not a lot of time to waste. A lot of time to waste. I'm tripping all over my words here because I'm so excited. So much to get into today. And let's get into, again, as I said off the top, it has officially become my favorite soap opera, right? Mom, dad, grandpa, grandpa, they watch General Hospital, One Life to Live. I don't even know what the cool soap operas are these days, but the coolest soap opera in college sports right now is As the Big Ten 
turns because every day something happens, every day something comes up, and every day it becomes more and more clear that everything that I have said from the beginning has been accurate. I know I say it every episode, but with new a new details coming out every day, we have to talk about it. And so I'm opening this show because two big things did happen on Monday relating to the Big Ten. One made a lot of headlines, one didn't, and I think the one that didn't is actually more important in terms of the broader conversation of the Big Ten. And so the two things that happened are very simply this. The first one is we finally got some clarification on this vote that ended the season in the Big Ten. If you remember, there was that Saturday, Sunday, Monday window where nobody was quite sure what was going on, and then all of a sudden, bam, on Tuesday, out of nowhere, the season is canceled. And if you remember, there was a ton of confusion over whether there was even a vote. And obviously, the Big Ten presidents did have to vote, but we never got clarification on if that vote happened. The, 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 the president of, the, of Minnesota came out and said, uh, I don't even know if this vote technically happened. The AD at Penn State said, I don't know if this vote technically happened. And so we finally got an answer, and it came on Monday, and it came because of what I told you on Monday's show, which was, of course, that there are now players in the Big Ten suing the conference for clarification on what happened. I talked about it on yesterday's show, but eight Nebraska football players have basically said like, look, you guys are screwing with our future earnings. We had the chance to potentially play really well this year, go on to the NFL. You really screwed that up, and so we are going to sue this league. That is exactly what happened, and as part of that lawsuit, they wanted clarification on what went in to the decision to cancel the football season. And so they got part of it on Monday, when the Big Ten finally admitted, yes, we did have a vote, and here is how it was laid out. And so for people who did not see this headline, the Big Ten vote went as follows. 11 school presidents voted to cancel the season. Three school presidents voted to play. The three school presidents that voted to play were Nebraska, Iowa, and Ohio State. And if you have followed this story from the beginning, if you have listened to this podcast from the beginning, you should not be surprised by those three that were in favor of actually playing. If you remember back to the beginning, it was Dan Patrick, of all people, who actually kind of broke the story. It was that Monday after the, you know, Sunday, there's the headline that they're on the verge of canceling. Monday, there's a little bit of pushback. And it was that Monday that Dan Patrick said, like, look, maybe, maybe they will you know, push back. But I'm telling you, the only two schools that I heard that want to play are Nebraska and Iowa. So credit to Dan Patrick because he was the first one to have those names. And then if you followed closely, the Ohio State president really did a a reverse course 180 very publicly to try to let the world know that she was in favor of playing the season. If you remember that day when it came out that Nebraska and Iowa were the only ones that voted in favor of the season – the Ohio State AD leaked a story. Kirk Herbstreet tweeted it out. A bunch of people tweeted it out. And she said, no, 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 no. I didn't, I didn't vote to cancel the season. I just wanted it postponed. I wanted to push back the way the SEC did to the middle to the end of September to give us more time. So when you add it up, when you've been following the tea leaves, this makes perfect sense. The three schools that very publicly wanted the world to know we wanted to play football are the ones that, as it turns out, according to the Big Ten's own documentation, they are the ones that voted to play. 
unfortunately for Big Ten schools, for Big Ten players, for Big Ten parents, there needed to be 60% of the, of the constituents, 60% of the schools voting to play. 75% uh, voted against playing, or excuse me, I think 60% had to be against playing and about 75% were, 11 out of the 14 schools weren't in favor of it. So that officially came out on Thursday. It officially came, or on Monday. That officially came out that there were only three schools that voted in favor. There was more med medical documentation that was let out, but it was a little confusing. It was a little deceptive. It's hard to know fact from fiction. And obviously, as I've said many times, uh, the, the documentation that the Big Ten has had explaining the medical concerns really doesn't line up with anyone else in college sports, right? The ACC has a doctor that says the heart condition, mitocarditis, is not something that is strictly related to COVID. It's something that comes up all the time. So anyway, the point is we get the vote. We get the, 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 a little bit of clarification on the medical concerns, but I do not believe that this will stop the Big Ten and the folks there from protesting this decision. I do not believe that it will stop the parents from protesting, led by Randy Wade, who was on this show a week ago. It will not stop the players from suing. It will not stop the parents from hiring Tom Mars, as I told you a day ago, is one of the big swinging you-know-whats in college sports, has gone after the NCAA. He's the guy that got Shea Patterson and Justin Fields eligible right away. And this guy is not going to quit until every little detail comes out and paints the Big Ten in the worst possible way. So I do believe that Kevin Warren believes that by dropping this information, that by sharing this information, and by the way, remember, it was just Friday that Kevin Warren claimed, the Big Ten claimed, that it would do irreparable harm to the communities of the Big Ten to actually share this information. It's amazing what can happen when a note comes from a lawyer and all of a sudden you have to share publicly with the information that you've been trying to keep private. I do not believe, however, that it will have an impact on what is going on in the Big Ten. I do not believe that the parents will stop fighting, that the players will stop fighting. And as I said on Monday's show, I truly believe that it is not too late for the Big Ten to reverse course to say we screwed up and to say, listen, let's get kids back to practice end of this week, early next week, and we can be playing games by early October. It can be done. I don't know if it will be done. I don't think the Big Ten wants to reverse course because then they would admit how wrong they've been throughout this process, but I don't think it's too crazy that we can still have that situation happen. Now, I will give you what I actually think was the bigger story as it pertained to the Big Ten, and it will again explain and clarify what I've been telling you for a month on how crazy this story is and how bad the Big Ten screwed this whole thing up. And that is, did you see this story out of a little place called South Bend, Indiana? Maybe you heard of them. Notre Dame, Touchdown Jesus, Brian Kelly, Era Parsesian, Rudy, Joe Montana. Maybe you heard of Notre Dame. Don't know if you heard of Notre Dame. But Notre Dame... This story, I felt like, kind of got washed under the radar on Monday. Notre Dame announced that they will not, they're not only playing football this year. Remember, Notre Dame is part of the ACC. Notre Dame is not only playing football this year, but they announced on Monday that they're actually going to have fans in the stands. And it's actually, if you really look into it, it's pretty cool. Basically, the students are going to get first priority to those tickets, and then any unsold student tickets can go to the public. I actually think that's a weirdly smart move by Notre Dame for a couple reasons. One, 
you're keeping people from outside the community from coming in. Two, you don't have donors and boosters fighting over who gets what tickets. You just basically say, like, none of you get it. Let's look forward to next year and let's get you back in this stadium. So there's a few reasons why I actually think it's a smart move by Notre Dame, but it doesn't change the fact that what I just said, Notre Dame will have fans in the stands this fall for college football. And you may be asking yourself, Aaron, they're in the ACC. Why is that a big deal? I will tell you why it is a big deal. It is a big deal because Notre Dame, I'm not great at geography, okay? But Notre Dame, from a little place called South Bend, Indiana, is going to have fans in the stands for their football games. Well, guess what? There are two schools in the Big Ten that are in the state of Indiana. The Indiana University, whose basketball coach was on this podcast a few weeks ago, by the way, go listen to that one, and Purdue. Somebody else brought this up to me, is that if you look at the geographic footprint, Michigan, Michigan State, Northwestern, and Illinois are all within a 200-mile drive of Notre Dame's campus. And so what you're saying is, the Big Ten is claiming that it is not safe for their players to play this fall. While Notre Dame, in the Big Ten footprint, is saying that not only do we think it's safe, we're going to have people in the stands. And so again, to me, this goes back to what I've now been saying for a couple weeks. I think Kevin Warren's on the clock. Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner, I think this is a ticking time bomb for him in terms of him being able to keep his job. And to be clear, I never root for anybody to lose their job. I don't want him to lose his job. I know he's been really successful. He came from the NFL. I know he has a family to support. And I know, oh, by the way, this isn't all his fault. This came from above him, from the school presidents who voted 11-3 to in favor of canceling this season. This came above him in some cases from the political figures in these states, including Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, who I called Cruella DeVille on this show last night because she's the one that said she was proud of the Big Ten for canceling the season. So I'm not saying it's all Kevin Warren's fault, but what I am saying is this just further casts an even bigger light onto the fact that this Big Ten decision made absolutely no sense. I mean, just think about what has happened in the last just week that has proven how dumb this decision was. First of all, Central Arkansas and Austin P played on Saturday night. I'm sorry. It's hard to argue that Austin P can safely pull off football, but Ohio State can't. That Central Arkansas can pull off college football, but Penn State can't. Oh, let's take it a step further. Don't know how close you were to the TV on Sunday and Saturday. We had high school football all across the country. And not only all across the country, there was a great game between two high schools in Ohio playing. So we had two high schools playing on ESPN from the state of Ohio, and Ohio State can't play football. Then this gets dropped that Notre Dame is going to play with fans in the stands. Not only is Notre Dame not canceling, not only are they hiding under the covers like everybody in the Big Ten wants them to, they are going to play with fans in the stands. And that is just a crippling body shot for the Big Ten because the more that I think about this, I just don't know how many body shots they can take until they start having to answer tough questions from the public. Think about this. Think about everything that has happened. And we've only had one college football game. 
And then think about what's going to happen when the ACC takes the field, when the SEC and the Big 12 take the field, and they're going to successfully pull this off. No different than the NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, MLS, Golf, NASCAR are pulling this off, okay? And I want you to think about the optics of the SEC playing, the ACC playing, the Big 12 playing, high school playing, the AAC playing. How about this? Think about this. Ohio State can't play, but we're going to have high school football in that state. We're going to have the NFL in that state. We're also going to have the Cincinnati Bearcats playing in that state. Indiana, we can't pull off football for Indiana and Purdue, but Notre Dame can play with fans. The Indianapolis Colts are going to play. In Pennsylvania, the Pitt Panthers are going to play. The Temple Owls are going to play. High school will play. The Pittsburgh Steelers, the Philadelphia Eagles. How many body shots can the Big Ten take? And how long can they justify this decision? Because every day more information comes out that makes them look worse and worse, that makes them realize how stupid this decision was and how short-sighted this decision was to cancel the first week in August without, as I've said a hundred times now, having a single padded practice. It never made sense. It never made sense. I've been on this from the beginning. I've been telling it like it is from the beginning and every single day it gets worse. And I wonder at what point people start asking for the jobs of the school presidents that allowed this decision to happen. Again, you can't be the president of the University of Michigan touting your back-to-school plan with 45,000 undergrads on campus while also saying that it's not safe to play football. Same at Penn State. Same at Ohio State. And Ohio State, like I said, they very publicly claim that they made this vote in favor of the Big Ten to play because this, this president's trying to save her job. And so I think at some point, heads are going to roll. I hate to say it. I do think some of these presidents are potentially going to lose their job. And I do think there's a real possibility that Kevin Warren is going to lose his job. And I don't wish against him. Like I said, he's got kids. He's got a wife. He's got a mortgage. I'm not wishing against anybody. But at some point, you have to stand up and explain yourself. And the explanations aren't good enough. And every single day, we get worse and worse news. And so because of that, I'm just telling you, I think it's a bad look for the Big Ten, and I think Kevin Warren is in deep, deep, deep trouble. I think some of these presidents are in deep, deep, deep trouble, and I'm telling you, I think some of these people are going to be out of jobs by January, if not by the end of this school year. All right, let's transition. So I've talked literally Big Ten at least the last 10 episodes, every single episode leading with the Big Ten, but it's as the Big Ten turns, right? It's what we do. Favorite soap opera going in sports right now. I want to have some fun though, right? Like, didn't we all get into sports because sports are fun to watch and to consume and all that kind of stuff? Well, let's talk about something fun. Because we got ourselves a little old-fashioned coaching carousel rumor on Monday. And that coaching carousel rumor involves your boy Dabo Sweeney, head coach, Clemson University. And so let me give you a little bit of background. Um, the, 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 the story kind of stems from... ESPN, Mike Tannenbaum, who is a former NFL GM, was on Get Up with Mike Greenberg in the morning, and he was talking about a lot of different things. And I think the context of this was that the Jacksonville Jaguars are in a very public rebuild, right? They traded one of their best defensive linemen over the weekend. They released Leonard Fournette, who might be maybe the best college football player I've ever seen. I'm not even kidding. Those two, three months at LSU during his senior year, he was maybe the best running back, maybe the best player I've ever seen in college football. But he gets released, 
And it becomes very quick, very clear, very quickly. They're basically just tanking for this season. And not only are they tanking for this season, they're tanking to put themselves in position to get some guy named Trevor Lawrence. Not sure if you heard of him. Really good. He is the best college quarterback that I've ever seen in my life. Hands down. He just is. People are always the best since Andrew Luck. Andrew Luck wouldn't look like this, man. Andrew Luck was not as big, not as strong, not as fast, not as much arm strength. I mean, Trevor Lawrence is like, like he's the guy. He is the best college quarterback that I have ever seen. But I bring it up because it is very clear that the Jacksonville Jaguars, the priority this season is not winning. They don't really care. They're trying to put themselves in position to get Trevor Lawrence. And according to Mike Tannenbaum, ESPN, the idea would be to bring Dabo Sweeney with Trevor Lawrence to the Jacksonville Jaguars. And the idea is kind of multifold. I'm not going to read the whole quote. I'll just kind of give you the, the, the nuts and bolts. But the first thing is, obviously, look, Dabo's won a very accomplished college coach, two national championships, five straight ACC titles, dominating the sport, has a great eye for talent, is a great developer of talent. Think about all the really good players in the NFL that played at Clemson, whether it is Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins, Sammy Watkins, on and on and on and on and on. Think about all the guys on the team this year that are going to be NFL stars. Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne. They got a bunch of wide receivers that are really good. They got a bunch of defensive linemen that are really good. They had three defensive linemen drafted, not this past draft, but the year before. Isaiah Simmons was a first-round pick last year. So he's obviously got a really good eye for talent. Um, He would obviously be comfortable coaching Trevor Lawrence. He is very comfortable in that region of the country, right? It's not like Dabo would have to go to Minnesota or Green Bay or Seattle or somewhere that, that, you know, maybe geographically doesn't make sense. And then the final reason is basically that they believe that he has the right mentality to coach in the NFL. And I actually do kind of agree with that, is the the analogy that Mike Tannenbaum used is that he's kind of got that Pete Carroll vibe to him, right? Pete Carroll, even when he was in college, he wasn't the Nick Saban demanding, uh, you know, banging on the table, yelling and screaming, screaming in players' faces. That was never who Pete Carroll was at USC. It's not who he's been in the NFL. And according to Mike Tannenbaum, Dabo Sweeney has kind of that same mentality that they believe would work in the NFL. Kind of interestingly, I should mention, it's kind of the same thing that was at play with Jay Wright, which I talked about a few days ago. If you remember, I talked about these Jay Wright to the Philadelphia 76ers rumors, and I think a lot of that has to do with, one, he's already in Philly. He runs a very like pro-style system in on the basketball side, but he's also kind of got that demeanor where like it would kind of make sense for him to go to the NBA. He's not Rick Pitino. He's not John Calipari. He's not a yeller and screamer. Jay Wright's just kind of, you know, cool Jay Wright. He's got his nice tan. He's got his nice suits. He claps a lot. He's not a yeller and screamer. And I think the belief is that Dabo Sweeney kind of has that vibe on the football side. I will just tell you, though, I do not see this. First of all, I, I think that the, like, the first thing you have to realize is I don't know that I'm sold that Jacksonville's actually going to end up with a number one pick. We saw this last year. If you, if you remember this time last year, Miami Dolphins were trying to do the exact same thing. They were trying to trade everybody they could to get in position to draft Tua at number one overall. They traded Minka Fitzpatrick, their star cornerback. They traded Laramie Tunsil, their star offensive tackle. And they still ended up with the fifth pick. They still ended up winning a ton of games. They beat the Patriots on the final day of the regular season. 
ironically, they still got two at number five, which is kind of weird in its own right. But there was this whole tank for Tua thing last year, and now there's a tank for Trevor thing going on this year. Just don't know that I buy that Jacksonville will even be in position to get Trevor Lawrence with the number one pick. And if you don't have a number one pick, you ain't getting Trevor Lawrence. I'm sorry. Even if a team that has a quarterback gets the number one pick, they'll probably just take Trevor Lawrence and trade whoever they have. But I think when you look beyond the fact that who knows if, if Jacksonville's even going to get the number one pick, I think there's a couple other factors. I think, one, Dabo's got it really good at Clemson. I mean, when you look at his resume, it is pretty surreal what he has built at Clemson during his time there. They have now won at least 10 games every year since 2011. Now, that may change this year. They're only playing 10 games in the regular season, but he's won at least 10 games every year since 2011. He's won at least 12 games each of the last five seasons. In four of those seasons, he's won at least 14 games, which is just absurd. I think there's like four programs in college football history that have won 14 games in a season, and he's done it four times in the last five years. He's won five straight ACC championships. He's been to five straight college football playoffs. He's won two national championships. He's played in four of the last five national championship games, which is absurd. But you think about the success that he's had, and he's got that program rolling. For people who don't follow high school football recruiting, they signed the number one quarterback last year as well, a kid out of California who's going to back up Trevor Lawrence this year and is the presumptive guy next year. So it's not as though once Trevor Lawrence leaves, there's going to be this huge drop-off. And so I look at what Dabo Sweeney's doing. I look at the fact that, that he's going to keep having this thing rolling, just brought in the number one recruiting class, headlined by the number one quarterback in the country. I just don't see what the rush to leave is. I mean, if you really think about it, there is nobody – in the ACC, that's even in the same stratosphere as Clemson right now, as far as talent, as far as player development, as far as recruiting, as far as facilities. There is nobody close. It used to be Florida State. They fell off. Louisville may get there someday, but they're nowhere near right now. Miami's nowhere near right now. North Carolina's on the way up with Mac Brown, but they're not there right now. And so Dabo, all he's got to do is get out of bed, and he's winning 11 games in the ACC. This was actually maybe the craziest stat that I saw from Dabo, is that he has not lost an ACC game period, regular season game, or uh, obviously the conference championship game. He has not lost a, an ACC game since 2017, okay? Back-to-back -back undefeated seasons in the ACC, and in four of the last six years, five of, uh, whatever, three of the last five years, excuse me, essentially in the last five years, he's lost two ACC games total. And so when I look at that, I'm like, why would he leave? I should mention, by the way, his son is also on the team, so that's a factor as well. Uh, you can use the John Calipari analogy. When John Calipari's son committed to Kentucky, uh, John Calipari said, well, I, I, I sleep with that kid's wife. I, I sleep with that kid's mom, so... Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm not leaving while he's here. So, I mean, that's another factor, too. But I just look at what Dabo's built, and it's like, why are you in a rush to leave? And why are you in a rush to go to Jacksonville? I understand Trevor Lawrence is going to be there in this hypothetical scenario, but even if Trevor Lawrence is there, it's still going to take two or three years to build a team around him. And even then, there's no guarantees. There's no promises. And you got it rolling at Clemson. And, oh, by the way, Trevor Lawrence, at some point, that coach, whoever is his coach next year is going to get fired. So you can get him down the road two, three, four years from now. I didn't even mention 
Dabo Sweeney makes $9 million a year. So to me, I think this is a great story. I think it's a cool story. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's like fun to talk about, but I just don't see where it actually happens because of what Dabo's built, because of the fact that he makes $9 million a year, his son is on the team, and the guy is literally a living legend. Maybe he just gets tired of beating up Wake Forest and NC State and Boston College after a while. I just don't see it. I really don't, but it'll be interesting to watch. All right, I want to wrap on a couple quick college hoops notes, and as mentioned, after this, Bobby Kremens, former head coach at Georgia Tech, joins the show. Really fun interview with him, and I think you'll really enjoy it. And like I said, it's been a tough couple days in college basketball for some of the legends of the sport. And so to talk to somebody who kind of lived and competed with some of these guys, whether it is, um, you know, whether it is uh, John Thompson and, and, and all these guys, it was cool to talk to Bobby Kremens, so you'll enjoy it. And I should talk about John Thompson really quick. And I guess what I would say with John Thompson is I really don't have like a ton to say about him, right? Like Lute Olsen, his time at um, at Arizona really kind of crossed paths with my time as a fan in college basketball. Lute Olsen didn't really leave Arizona till about 2005, 2006. I started watching college basketball in 94, 95, 96. And so there was like a nice 10-year gap where one, Arizona was always good and they, they, they won the 97 National Championship. 98, they had the number one team in the country. 2001, they get back to the Final Four. 2005, if you remember, they played Illinois in the Elite Eight in one of the great college games ever. So I had like this nice big window where I remember Ludles. With John Thompson, I don't really have as much to say because really when I became a college basketball fan is actually when he was kind of heading out the door. The first real season that I remember in college basketball is the 95-96 season, and that was actually the, the, the last year that Allen Iverson was at Georgetown, and it was a crazy year. I remember it specifically on my end because of the fact that UConn was actually really good that year. That was maybe the best year for the Big East I don't know about ever, but certainly like of my time watching college basketball, that was the year where Arizona, UConn, and Georgetown were basically all fantastic teams all season long. And I do remember, of course, that season because UConn and Georgetown played a couple really marquee games. There was a big Monday game where Allen Iverson ran UConn almost single-handedly out of the gym when UConn was the third-ranked team in the country. So I do remember that. And I do remember that year, one of the great Big East championship games of all time. They called it the Allen versus Allen game because it was Allen Iverson for Georgetown versus Ray Allen from UConn. But after, George, uh, after Allen Iverson left, Georgetown took a dip. And so I don't remember the glory years of Georgetown. And to our older fans who remember Patrick Ewing and remember Alonzo Mourning, I do apologize. I just, I just don't remember. I've read, I've watched highlights, I've watched YouTube videos, but I just don't have that kind of uh, historical knowledge of John Thompson that I do of, say, a Lute Olsen. But what I would also say is that when you look at John Thompson's resume, it's surreal. First of all, I mentioned this with Lute Olson yesterday. I thought it was really interesting, just his background. First, for, for people who don't know his background, John Thompson was a really good player. He went to Providence College. He was actually Bill Russell's 
backup with the Celtics, which is pretty cool, starts as a high school coach, then gets the job at Georgetown, and it was kind of a, a really big moment. And I think what we all forget is, listen, we're all going through kind of some surreal times in our society right now outside of sports. But John Thompson, when he got the Georgetown job, it had only been about five or six years before an African-American had been named a head coach anywhere in college basketball. So in a lot of ways, John Thompson um, you know, dealt with some stuff that I, I think even those of us that, that saw him coach, I don't think we fully realized it until you go back and read about it. Uh, he was an advocate. He was a fighter. I thought it was really interesting that there was a minimum eligibility rule that he did not like. And he actually, in the same way the NBA players walked out last week, he walked out of a Georgetown game refusing to coach when the NCAA was going to pass a rule about minimum eligibility. And he fought it and he said it wasn't fair. And he said it was um, something that impacted, that would only impact low income minority athletes. Um, something that really hits kind of close home to me. My wife works with a lot of low-income children, and I do see kind of the economic disparities that, that come up and how tough it is for children of those backgrounds. So I respect John Thompson. Speaking of which, speaking of respect, I found this story really interesting. I actually heard this story about a year ago, and I don't know how well-known it is out there. This, is, this tells you the presence of John Thompson. And for people who do not know, John Thompson was legitimately six foot ten. So he really did fill a room, and he really did pose an intimidating presence. But this great story, I shared it on Twitter on Tuesday morning, and people loved it. Late 80s, Georgetown's rolling. They're one of the great programs in the country. And there's a very prominent drug dealer in the city of Washington, D.C., who takes up being a Georgetown fan, right? They're the cool team, they're fun, they're the, they're the team everybody wants to watch, everyone wants to follow, and this guy, his name was, uh, I just had his name right here, it was Rayful Edmund III, the most feared drug dealer in Washington, D.C., and he becomes friends with a couple Georgetown players. And so not only does John Thompson, this is the great story, not only does John Thompson tell his players to stay away from this guy, he calls this guy into his office and says, no, 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 no. I don't want you anywhere near my players. Stay away from Georgetown basketball. And it is believed to be John Thompson is the only guy that ever stepped up to this drug dealer and said, stay away from me. I want nothing to do with you. And the guy respected him, respected his wishes, and stayed away from Georgetown basketball. If that does not tell you the presence of John Thompson, I don't know what would. On top of that, the only other things that I really come to mind when I think of John Thompson, one, I just kind of mentioned it, the cool program. I mean, I still, even though I grew up in Connecticut, I know so many people that had Georgetown starter jackets and Georgetown gear, and they were a team that a lot of people really liked. Cool team, maybe even in a way that I don't know how many college basketball teams even resonate that way now. Maybe Kentucky, maybe Duke, maybe Carolina, but in the mid to late 80s, Georgetown was that team. They, of course, win the national championship with Patrick Ewing, go to three Final Fours with Patrick Ewing. As I said, seven Elite Eights. John Thompson, a, a literal legend. I want to say rest in peace. Um, and just disappointing. Just disappointing. He lived a fulfilling life, but it's just disappointing that we've lost now three, four college basketball legends when you include Eddie Sutton, Lou Henson, Lute Olson and John Thompson here in the last couple weeks. All right, last story, and again, it's a little bit more of a, a lifting pick-me-up story, but a few weeks ago, 
I talked about Arkansas hiring this really big-time assistant coach named David Patrick in basketball and the impact that I thought David Patrick could have for the Arkansas basketball program. And on Monday, a news nugget that, be, that had been rumored for a while became official, and that is that Jay Lucas, who is one of the most well-respected assistant coaches in college basketball, is going to Kentucky. And it's a little bit of a unique deal. He is technically not going to be an on-the-court assistant coach. He is going to be in a role called special assistant to the head coach slash recruiting coordinator. And so it's a little bit of a different deal. But I want to tell you what I know about Jay Lucas. I wrote a story last week on Kentucky Sports Radio that you guys should go check out. But here's what I would say. First of all, I've always kind of wondered, I've actually talked to Corey Evans, my buddy, the recruiting writer, why other programs haven't done this. Why basically these college basketball programs don't basically have a director of player personnel. And I bring it up because if you look at college football, the way that the recruiting room is set up, there is a guy in football whose full-time job is just recruiting. It's getting tape, evaluating guys, and kind of funneling information down to the assistant coaches so they know who to go out and recruit. Now, it's a little different in football. You're recruiting a couple hundred kids for 25 spots. You take a couple hundred, you whittle them down to 25. But every major college football program has two, three, four people working just in recruiting, just in evaluating, just in trying to set things up for the, the assistant coaches and the head coach. And I've never understood why we don't do that in basketball. And it appears as though that is what this position is for. Essentially, Jay Lucas, his job, he has been a recruiter for years and his job is to basically network, it is to talk with his AAU contacts, his high school contacts, and basically get to know who are the up-and-coming kids, who are the guys that I need to know so that John Calipari and his staff can go out and evaluate those kids in the summer and obviously in the fall as well. And a couple people, a lot of people really, have been surprised by this move, have said, you know, why did this guy take what is considered a demotion? He cannot go out on the road to recruit. Why did he make this decision? And there's a few reasons. I talked to a bunch of people in Texas, and there's a few reasons. I think one, the first thing is, is that, look, we can't hide from the fact that Shaka Smart is on the hot seat. We can't hide from the fact that if he does not have a good season, he may be out of a job. Now, Jay Lucas would have been fine. He would have got another assistance job. But it doesn't change the fact that I don't think that you can look out for yourself too much in a situation like this. Let's be honest, there's not too many places hiring during a pandemic. Kentucky is one of them. And even if you're off the road for a little while, uh, it's not that big of a deal because you still get Kentucky on, on your resume, right? And in the KSR article that I wrote, I talked to a very prominent figure in Texas who had actually just spoken with Jay Lucas the day before who said, look, you can't put a price for having, there, there's no price you can put on having Kentucky on your resume for working for a Hall of Famer like John Calipari. Two, it's a unique time in recruiting. And I give my buddy Jack Pilgrim, also writes for Kentucky Sports Radio, he was the first one that really put this out there, is that with so much going on virtually right now in recruiting, it's not that big of a deal to not be able to get on the road. And for people who don't understand how college basketball recruiting works, basically during the summer you go out, you watch AAU, and then you follow up during the, the fall, you go to all these practices, you go watch these kids work out, but you can't do any of that right now. As of right now, there is no off-campus recruiting, I believe, until, I could be mistaken, I want to say September 31st, which means that you can't go to a high school, you can't get on a plane, you can't go to see kids that you want to see, 
And so because of that, everything is done virtually. And as Jack Pilgrim said, with everything done virtually, when you have a virtual phone call, when you do an interview, when you do a call through Zoom, you can have the entire coaching staff on there. You can have the strength coach, you can have the meal, you know, the nutritionist, you can have the academic advisor, you can have any assistant you want. There's no limitation to how many people can be on those calls. There's a limitation to how many people can go on the road, but no limitation to who can be on those calls. Something else that is equally important that I dug up is that Jay Lucas can actually have more contact with actual recruits than I think a lot of people realize. I talked to two assistant coaches before I wrote that story about the guy, and they told me that, first of all, he can be in touch with anyone that isn't a player or a parent, right? So he can call all his AAU guys all day, every day. Hey, who are the next guys? Who are the guys that are freshmen and sophomores that we need to know about? He can call his high school buddies. He can call people about guys that might be transferring when the transfer portal picks up. He can be a guy working the phones to figure out, okay, who may be leaving, who may be coming, what coach may be fired, who's on that roster, et cetera, et cetera. But what I was also told by the, the assistant coaches that I've talked to, the NCAA actually changed their rules so that now he can even talk to recruitable athletes as long as they reach out to him first. Now, you could say it's a dumb NCAA rule, and it kind of is a dumb NCAA rule. But this guy, Jay Lucas, because he's not an assistant coach, he cannot personally reach out to any prospect that is not signed at Kentucky. So if Aaron Torres, the short 5'10 slow guy, is a recruit that Kentucky wants to recruit, he cannot reach out to, to, to me, the recruit. But if, I wanna, if I'm interested in Kentucky and my AAU coach knows Jay Lucas, I can reach out to Jay Lucas and say, hey, man, I want to talk, let's get on the phone, or hey man, here's my number, let's text. And so that's a big deal. And so when you factor in all the different things, one, I do think he's going to be in kind of a player personnel role where he's not only looking at prospects that they're recruiting at that exact moment, but he's trying to figure out who are the next guys, sophomores, juniors, freshmen, international guys, guys who uh, may be hitting the transfer portal. I think that is going to be his role, but again, he can be on every Zoom call. And he can still connect with all his AAU and high school people, but he can also have recruits reach out to him as long as they connect first. And so when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. I think he is going to open even more doors for Kentucky. I tweeted this the other day. Kentucky doesn't need anybody opening doors for them, but I do think he is the kind of guy that has a chance to bring in even more prominence to the Kentucky recruiting base. And he is huge in Texas where so many great players, Cade Cunningham, R.J. Hampton, Greg Brown, on and on and on, have come out over the last couple years. All right, so I think that is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Uh, look, I went way longer than I thought I was. I, wasn't even, I, I probably shouldn't even use the Bobby Kremens interview at this point, but screw it. Bobby Kremens is coming up. I could have saved it for later in this week. But Bobby Kremens, the head coach formerly of Georgia Tech, uh, he is going to join the show here momentarily. Really fun interview. I think you guys will enjoy. Before we get started, I want to. Before I get out of here, I should say. Before I get started with Coach Cremens, want to remind you: please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what needs work, all those kind of things. Also, if you're not following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, 
at Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. And if you want to find me on Cameo, hit me up on Cameo at Aaron underscore Torres, Cameo.com, Aaron underscore Torres. That is all for today's show. Head coach, formerly of Georgia Tech, uh, led them to a ton of success, including the 1990 Final Four. Here is Bobby Cremens. That is it. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Here is Bobby Cremens. All right, joining me via Zoom. Very excited about this uh, phone call, this guest. He was the former head coach at Georgia Tech, App State, College of Charleston, three-time ACC Coach of the Year, College Hoops legend, Bobby Cremens. Coach, how you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, Aaron. Thank you for having me on. How was that introduction? Did that encapsulate 40-plus uh, <laughs> years in basketball pretty well? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I played the game. Yeah. My first, my first passion was playing. Uh-huh. And um, actually, um, I wanted to be a, a professional player. That was my number one goal in life. Mm-hmm. And fortunately for me, Aaron, when, when that door closed, uh, the coaching door opened up. And I fell in love with coaching as much as I did playing. Didn't you play professionally in like Ecuador or somewhere like that for a year? Yeah, I tried. Played. Uh, I tried to play in the old ABA. Okay. I, I tried out for the Pittsburgh Condors, and they sure. got traded to the Carolina Cougars. Okay. And what? then, um, I then I went overseas, and I played overseas, and I wound up playing in uh, Ecuador, South America, a place called Guadalquivir. Okay. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. And I got, I got offers to play in, in Europe. Um, but I decided um, I didn't want to – I wanted to live in the United States. I wanted to come back to my family. And so um, it was the NBA or nothing. And, um, and again, um, when that stopped, somehow the coaching door came open. And that, that opened up a whole new world for me. What was it like, a kid from New York City, probably early to mid-20s, uh, when you landed in Ecuador? I've never been. I've been to, you know, Central America. Never been to Ecuador, though. Yeah, it was uh, – the poverty was incredible. There sure. were, you know, two classes of people, Aaron. It was the upper class and the lower class. Sure. Um, but beautiful people, wonderful people, very kind. I remember there was a, a, a season of bugs. <laughs> it was a, there was this weird bug that would come for about a month. And uh, I was scared of those bugs, and there were so many of them. Sure. There was an earthquake once. Okay. Um, I, I used to go to the beach a lot, the Playas. Uh, I used to hang out with the Peace Corps people. Okay. And um, that, was a, that was a lot of fun. That was interesting, too. Uh, but I, it was a great experience. Fantastic. We'll get into your coaching career in a second, but I was just curious, you know, you coached in the ACC for close to two decades, uh, right around two decades, and you did coach at College of Charleston through 2012, but have been kind of sort of, maybe you don't feel like this, but I feel like you've been a relatively off the grid as in, in terms of basketball. Uh, what have you been up to the last five, six, seven years since you kind of got out of coaching? Well, I always, when I didn't coach, I always, um, I did TV stuff. And radio. And Aaron, that was great for me because it kept me close to the game. I would love going to the coaches' practice. I love doing the games and see the strategy. And, and then the um, NABC, our National Association of Basketball Coaches, they put me on a committee, an NCAA committee. 
uh, the Committee for Infractions, which oh. is something I didn't know about. I didn't know what I was getting into. Now, um, I cannot be on any case that I have any affiliation if I know anybody, which is good. But that's, that's been good, too, keeping me close to the game. And um, I, I try and stay close to the game, even though I'm not in the trenches anymore. I have a lot of former assistants who are still coaching. And I just love the game. I'm very good friends with a lot of coaches. I was with Nike my whole career. And we have a Nike trip every year. This year we didn't obviously have one. And um, I've always tried to remain friends with coaches. I, I, I love coaches. I love watching them try and build programs. I love watching them go through adversity. It was really interesting watching um, Tony Bennett at Virginia, you know, losing in the losing in a historic loss to a 16th seed and then coming back and getting redemption by winning a national championship. That was, that was really something to watch. So I'm still heavily involved in the game in any way I can be. That's what I was going to say. I mean, Tony Bennett was one that probably struck me. I mean, what teams or programs do you kind of enjoy watching either from a distance or maybe that you have an affiliation with in kind of modern college hoops? Because it's kind of a crazy sport where, you know, some guys are young every year. Some guys are old every year. Some guys take transfers. It's just kind of a wild sport to follow because there's so many schools that do it in so many different ways. That's right. Uh, there's a, you know, sometimes I, um, I, I feel um, I feel like um, I should be coaching because so many of my peers sure. uh, yeah. are close to my age, particularly, of course, Coach K, uh, Coach Beheim, Coach Leonard Hamilton, Cliff Ellis, former Clemson coach, is still coaching out there. Uh, there's a, a lot of coaches um, who are still coaching. <clears throat> and sometimes I think, you know, maybe I, I left too soon. Uh, so that's a big trend today. There is no age gap. In the old days, we all thought we'd go to about 60, no longer than 62, 63. Um, and then the other thing that, that, I, that, I, that I love watching is uh, the young coaches. I like to see the young coaches like a Tony Bennett come on the scene and, and make, make progress, make headway, and, um, and build the program. Very good. You know, you mentioned building a program. I believe Coach K, I was just reading this morning, said that he believes that you're the greatest program builder in the history of the ACC. So I just want to set up the tone here for people who are a little young might not remember. Uh, you get to Georgia Tech, 1980-81. Um, I read that I'm a little young, so I apologize, but nine losing seasons in the 10 years before you get there. The ACC is loaded. Dean Smith is there. Coach K, I believe, got there right around the same time as you, maybe a year before, maybe the same year. Um, but Georgia Tech was, was completely off the grid. And within four years, you win an ACC title. But we'll get to the ACC title in a moment. What do you do when you get to this league of just incredible coaches, incredible talent? Maryland was really good at the time. NC State was good at the time. Uh, what is the first step towards building that program? Because Coach K himself said you're the greatest program builder in the history of the conference. Yeah, I, pre I appreciate Mike saying that. Well, um, let me just say, um, as a player, uh, Aaron, I played in the ACC. And I lost a very difficult game, an ACC championship game. And I did not handle that loss very well. It really stuck with me. 
and um, I was immature. And then once I got into coaching, um, I felt like I would love to someday coach in the, in the league where I played and get some redemption and maybe win an ACC championship as a coach that I lost as a player. And so being able to go into the ACC gave me that opportunity. I wasn't sure what I was getting into, and that probably was very good. People told me, <laughs> people told me, you know, you don't want to go there. You're not going to win. You're not going to beat those other schools. I didn't care about that. I could care less. I just wanted an opportunity. And it turned out to be uh, Atlanta is a great city. Georgia Tech is a great academic institution. And it was just a perfect, perfect fit. It was a, I was at the right place at the right time. And, of course, the, my major motivation was ACC basketball. I was nervous. Um, as you alluded to, Coach K and Jimmy V uh, arrived one year before me, and the three of us were known as the Young Guns. Okay. And, of course, the guy we had to go against was Dean Smith. Dean Smith. Uh, the first thing, Aaron, you have to do is um, your staff. You've got to hire a great staff. And um, that was number one. And then secondly, you know, you've got to recruit, recruit, recruit. Uh, we had to go through a year where we, um, you know, could not recruit because we came in late. And we just had to, um, the first year, we had to coach our brains off, uh, shorten the clock, play a, play a slow down game try and stay in games and not get embarrassed. And while all that was going on, we were recruiting every hour that we possibly could. I, I, one of my former assistants, George Felton, who's now a scout for the Spurs, um, he was at an AAU tournament in Jacksonville, and he called me. He said, I think I found the kid. And I said, um, well, you're in Jacksonville. That's not too far from Atlanta. He said, no, no, the tournament's here. But the kid's from Enid, Oklahoma. Okay. And we, he discovered Mark Price. And we yeah. went out to Oklahoma. Aaron, we saw, we saw him play every one of his games. Every wow. One. Wow. Yeah. And then I went up to New York, my stomping grounds, and we saw a skinny kid by the name of John Sally, who lives in your area. Yep. And, um, and John... Uh, visited Atlanta, fell in love with, Aunt, with Atlanta. Uh, the mayor was Andrew Young. Andrew Young spoke to John, and John came with us. He uh, then grew about four inches, and he's one of the brightest young men that I've ever coached. And um, so, you know, again, it was a combination of building the program by you got to believe in yourself. You can't doubt yourself. you got to have a great staff, great staff. And then you got to go roll up the sleeves and go find some young men who can, um, can uh, you know, um, fit the mold that you want and achieve the challenge that you're about to take on. So, dumb question, what was recruiting like back in the early to mid-'80s? Because now coaches can pull up, you know, endless film. Uh, you know, you can find any piece of information you need on a kid – uh, but what was it like back in 19, whatever, 80, 81, 82, where, uh, I, I don't even know. I, I'll, I'll throw it back to you. What was recruiting like? How did you find players? Was it more relationship-based in terms of the people that you knew in high schools, colleges, whatever? Uh, how, how was recruiting back then? Yeah, it's a great question, Aaron. Uh, 
first of all, there were there were no dead periods, and no, um, you know, there was no um, play times uh, throughout the year where you could take a break. It was um, wow. it was twenty four seven. It was twelve months a year, and um, and you know we'd go all over the country. But basically, you know, I'm from New York, and um, so basically, Aaron, it, it would all start with uh, recruiting services. Okay. And one of the big recruiting services was a thing called Five Star. Cool. So Five Star, um, it was run by Howie Garfinkel in New York and Tommy Kuchowski. And they would send out a report. Now, what they'd have, they'd have camps in order to see these kids play. And we'd all go up to um, Garfinkel's camp. That was held first in Honesdale, uh, Pennsylvania, and then in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, Sonny Vaccaro. Another person lives in your area. Yep. He would have the Nike camp. And the Nike camp would bring the top 100 players in high school, upcoming seniors. And Sonny would, um, he would bring them all to Princeton, New Jersey uh, for one week. And then um, other, other shoe companies started camps. And Sonny eventually moved over to Adidas. And so now we had an Adidas camp run by Sonny Vaccaro. We had a Nike camp, we had five-star camp, and it was imperative that you would go to these camps and watch these young men play. And, and that was really, really big that we did that. Once we did that, we could then target who we were going to recruit. And then once the, um, you know, September would roll around, then we would charge into their homes and high schools and try and get them to commit. Second really dumb question. I've seen old videos of that five-star camp. Uh, you know, there's videos of John Calipari when he's 21, 22, working kids out. What happened when it rained? Because I grew up in Connecticut, and it rains all the time in the summer, and they're doing these camps at these outdoor courts. Did they just call the camp, uh, you know, did they make it two weeks and hope nothing rained or what? No. We, they always had one gym. Okay, always okay. Had, like, for instance, in Pittsburgh, it'd be Robert Morris campus. Okay. And you're absolutely right. Nobody played in the indoor court sometimes, but it was all outdoor courts, which we loved, uh, especially in the evening. When we come back after dinner, they would, the games would start about 7 o'clock and end around 10, 11 o'clock at night. But once the rain came, what Howie Garfinkel did, he would immediately, everybody would go to the main gym. Okay. And then sometimes, you know, Bobby Knight could be there, Mike Fratello, and Howie would um, get one of the, the great coaches there, Yubi Brown, to do a clinic, to talk to the people. And sometimes he would have the counselors. Um, he would have these great college players who were counselors because they had great counselor games. And he would tell the counselors, okay, let's do a counselor game. And the campers loved that. And so did we. That was fun to watch. So you'd always come up. You had to be creative. And, but we would all report to the gym. And, and some good things would happen in that gym. Very interesting. Another kind of question in that vein. Um, if so much of the evaluation is happening at a camp where all the coaches are, I mean, now, you know, you, well, I guess it's kind of the same now. Because I was going to say, I would feel like, you know, a Mark Price or somebody like that, you wouldn't want the other coaches to see until he signs a letter of intent, of course. Uh, 
I, I don't know. I just, I think that's interesting that it was so, there was some, I feel like there was probably less information available back then. And I feel like you'd almost not want your guy to, to show up to a camp like that because you don't want everybody else to find out about him. But maybe I'm wrong on that. No, you're not. No, you're absolutely right. And sometimes we would hate that. We would hate to have a kid that we thought, you know, that, that the other people didn't know about. And all of a sudden, Howie Garfinkel, Sonny Vaccaro, Sonny didn't miss a beat. Uh, they would invite them to the camp. And I can remember easily, you know, going to the camp and saying, uh-oh, because um, the kid would play fantastic. And all of a sudden, he was no longer what I call a sleeper. Sure. And everybody would start recruiting him. Um, but there were, there were always sleepers, Aaron. There was always kids that were not invited to these um, superstar camps. And you loved it when you found a kid <laughs> that, that didn't go to the camp. Uh, I coached a kid by the name of Matt Harpring. Sure. And Matt Harpring, played, he played baseball, uh, basketball, and football. Okay. And he, and he never, never went to the camps. Uh, I don't know if Stephon Curry ever went to the camps because Stephon Curry did not have one power school offer him a scholarship. So, Aaron, you, there's always, you know, there's always interesting stories. There's always somebody that slips between the cracks, and you better keep an eye out for those kids also. Yeah, I mean, our rookie of the year this year in the NBA, John Morant, went to Murray State. Uh, Obi Toppin, uh, I actually interviewed him for this same show, and he, he's, he had kind of a crazy story, too. Growth spurt, academic problems, and then all of a sudden you look up and he's 21, 22, and he's a monster. So, uh, all right, so uh, Georgia Tech, you mentioned uh, Mark Price and John Sally, and they were kind of the backward. People don't know, by the way, Mark Price, multiple-time NBA play, uh, NBA All-Star. John Sally played like 10, 12 years in the league, multiple NBA championships. So right away you evaluate and find two guys that are, that are NBA players, frankly, and really good NBA players. Um, I, I think if my memory and my notes serve me correct, the first two years are a little bit of a struggle. Third year you get things rolling. Then fourth year, like I said, ACC regular season tournament championship – did you catch people off guard that year? I mean, uh, you know, how surprising was it when you looked up and you were the ACC champs in 85? Yeah, Mark, Mark Price was, um, he was about 5'11", 6 feet. And people thought he was too small. And, um, and that really helped us. Uh, by, by the time, of the, near the uh, end of his uh, senior year, people started to come see him play. But we had been there from day one, watched every single game. And people started to think, maybe this kid is good enough. There was a kid in Oklahoma by the name of Steve. Um, um, I'll tell you in a second. Um, uh, but Steve um, was a very good player, and he wanted to go to North Carolina. So did Mark Price. And so um, North Carolina signed Steve, and, and that helped us uh, get Mark Price. Um, John, Sally, everybody just thought he was too skinny, Aaron. And, um, we really hit it off because, you know, I was from New York, even though I'm from the Bronx and he's from Brooklyn. Um, so it was, um, it was interesting getting those two kids and, and then watching them develop. Very good. Um, 
throughout the, you know, one of the reasons I want to have you on. So I had Josh Passer on probably about four or five weeks ago, and he's about my age, maybe a year or two older. But, you know, he remembers kind of the Georgia Tech, the excitement around the program that I do from when I was young. What was it like when he really had things rolling? Because if memory serves me correct, the Braves weren't very good for a good chunk of the time that you were there through the 80s, 1990, they turn around, Falcons, Hawks, et cetera. So what Josh was telling me was that you guys were really the hottest ticket in town. I mean, when you get that thing rolling, a couple ACC championships, deep tournament runs, what was Atlanta like during those years? It was fantastic. Uh, you know, um, the people really started to come. Atlanta's a great city, and they love a winner. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, of course, ACC basketball. You know, we, that was the – yeah, I should have mentioned that, too, building a program. We sold ACC basketball. We told the players um, that they could play in a conference where the best players in the country played. And so, you know, we started then to um, get McDonald's All-American. Bruce Darrapo was our first McDonald's All-American. Dwayne Farrell came, Tommy Hammonds. And it, it, really, it really got fun. And we were on a roll. And then, of course, Kenny Anderson, Travis Bess, James Forrest. Um, it was a lot of fun, Aaron. And, um, you know, we, we wanted to win it all. We wanted to um, – you know, try and get that national championship. And, um, and, you know, that's every coach's dream. And we came up a little short there. Yeah, no, I just, uh, you know, I looked it up. I think it was nine straight NCAA tournaments in the 80s into the 90s. And it was at a time, you kind of reference it off the top, where the ACC was so good. I mean, you know, you mentioned Dean Smith, Coach K, Jim Valvano, uh, you know, Maryland, all that stuff. So, no, I mean, it was unbelievable. And, uh, yeah, I, I was a – a fan growing up watching all of it from a distance, but that was what Josh said was just the excitement in the city, the toughest ticket in town, all that stuff. Uh, you mentioned Kenny Anderson. I mean, how, how does that one come about? For people who don't know, and I'll be honest, I didn't even realize quite how decorated that he was uh, as a high school player, but basically was like everyone's like national player of the year, number one high school player in America. I believe some people – had him ranked ahead of Shaquille O'Neal in his high school recruiting class. Uh, he's from New York. I know you're from New York, but I mean, how did you get uh, Kenny Anderson down to Georgia Tech? Well, his high school coach and I both went to the same high school, All okay. Hollows High School in the Bronx. Uh, he's a famous coach. His name is Jack Curran. And Coach Curran had a camp at Fordham University every summer. And I would go and speak. And one day he told me, he said, see that little kid over there, he's going to start for me as a freshman. Wow. And, and I knew Coach Curran never, never started freshman. And so I said, Coach, could I meet him? <laughs> and I, I shook his hand, and I started recruiting him. I recruited him for four years. From that wow. very moment, I recruited him. And he was a superstar. He was a natural point guard. He could score, but he was an incredible ball handler an incredible passer. And uh, it came down to North Carolina, Syracuse, and Georgia Tech. And uh, we got him. And, uh, and one of the reasons we got him was Mark Price. Uh, he loved, he loved the, uh, the success that Mark Price had. And it, it worked out great. It really did. So, you know, you said back then there were no recruiting rules. So for Mark Price, for Kenny Anderson – 
how often are you hopping on a flight from Atlanta to New York uh, to make sure that you're not missing something when Jim Beheim or whoever is, is, is going to be able to get to the same event? Well, uh, since you're in L.A., I'll tell you a funny story. Okay, let's go. Um, I got a phone call about Don McLean. Okay. And um, um, so, you know, California, I didn't recruit California a lot. We actually got a young man out of there. He transferred. But I just felt like California was in, uh, in Europe. Sure. Um, but um, they convinced me that this young man really was serious about Georgia Tech. Wow. So I flew out there and met with Don and his family, his high school coach. Um, Simi Valley, I think it was Simi Valley High School. Sounds about right, yeah. And actually, so one day um, in practice, what I told we practiced a little bit earlier. I told my manager, you know, you be ready, get the car ready. <laughs> and I slipped out of practice a little early to catch like a three o'clock or four o'clock flight out of Atlanta. And it arrived in um, LA at seven. I jumped in the rental car. I got over there just as uh, the game would start at Simi Valley. And then when, when it was over, I would rush back to the airport, catch a red eye back to Atlanta. And um, I did that a few times. And the same goes for New York. Uh, Homer Rice, who hired me, my athletic director, he said that I was the only guy that could break an unlimited budget. <laughs> <laughs> But we, we, we went all the time. Yeah. We, we went all the time because, again, there were, there were no dead periods. There were no yeah. quiet periods. And, um, you know, we just felt like, you know, that we had to show these young men how badly we wanted them. Yeah. And we just would go all the time. Now, I, wanted, I don't mind telling you, it hurt me as a, a, as a, 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 a husband and as a father. Sure. And, and I regret that, but I made up for that. Um, because, you know, I tell these young coaches today, you've got to keep your priorities in order. And I'm glad, I'm so happy that they have dead periods and quiet periods where you cannot recruit. And I tell every coach today, Sunday, you know, unless it's during the season and you got to practice for an hour or two, but make Sunday a day where you do nothing, nothing basketball-wise. And you just concentrate every moment to be with your wife and your family. I've had so many guys this offseason, and it's tragic events. I'm not saying that we wanted it to happen, but because of this pandemic, I've had so many guys tell me, um, you know, it's been a blessing in disguise. I get to spend more time with my family. Uh, I realize that I don't have to be doing this, that, and the other thing, you know, 24 hours a day. I'm learning how to work smarter, recruit smarter, all that stuff. So uh, you're not the first person that's told me that even in the last, you know, four or five months. But, yeah, I was curious because, you know, with the, with the no dead period thing, I mean, I remember reading uh, Brian Dutcher, who's the head coach at San Diego State now, he was the lead recruiter at Michigan during the Fab Five, and he told me, like, he saw Jawan Howard play – like 30 days in a row or something like that, because back then you could go to, to, and they were only a state away. I mean, it was probably a short drive. It probably wasn't that big of a deal, but back then he said they would play in the summer every day at the park. He's like, I would just go to the park and watch Juwan Howard play every single day for 34, 35 days in a row. So that's what made me think of it. And then also 
like you said, now, now all these coaches get private planes, they get in, they get out. I'm guessing back then you were probably, there was no charter flights. You were going to the airport, going through security, all that stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. I finally um, found a great parking place at the Atlanta airport. <laughs> and I had everything timed down and the Delta people were great. They, they were great. And, um, but you're right. Um, you know, there were, you had to go through security and it was a different world. Um, but you know, it was a fun world. It was fun going to watch these kids play. Yeah. With Kenny Anderson, uh, I did. Oh, one other thing I want to ask you, I was reading something about Kenny Anderson today and they said, and by the way, for people who don't know, Kenny Anderson was a phenomenal, phenomenal high school college player into the NBA. Uh, you know, I don't know if he had the NBA career that some people thought, but I mean, he was one of the best. Uh, like college point guards maybe ever in the two years that he was with you. I saw that he said one of the reasons he committed was because you let young guys play right away. And I saw this, I think it was four years in a row, you had the ACC freshman of the year and like six out of eight or something. I feel like maybe you were a little bit ahead of your, your time now because guys now, they understand if I get a good player, I might only have them for a year or two, but I'm not going to put them behind a senior. I'm going to let the best guy play. I mean, was that always your philosophy? Just let whoever's the best player give them the opportunity, senior or freshman? Well, uh, Aaron, I did not recruit a lot of players. Okay, okay. And, 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 and usually when I recruited the Kenny Anderson and so forth, um, the, the great opportunity would be there for them. It was not like they were going to come in and move somebody out. Okay. Um, um, you know, um, I coached Kenny uh, for two years, um, Stefan Marbury for one. But one of the reasons Stefan came with us was that we had an opening. Travis Best was a senior. Okay. Uh, when Travis Best came, we had an opening. So if I didn't have the opening, I would not recruit the, the position. Um, I, I felt uh, I, I was always a better recruiter if I had the right opportunity for the young man I was recruiting. And when I would go to these camps, I would know exactly what we needed. And once I saw that a young man would fit in perfectly exactly what we needed, that's the guy that I wanted to go recruit because I felt like I had the perfect opportunity for him. Very interesting. In 90 with Kenny Anderson, you guys go to the final four. One, I would love to hear kind of the experience. And like you said, obviously every coach wants to win a national championship, but from where you started to get to a final four uh, is incredible. But then the other thing was, you know, the, 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 the UNLV teams from that era have kind of become historic. And the year they won the national championship, they beat Duke by 30 in the championship game. And everyone remembers that great game. You guys played them in the final four, the game before and played them really tough. Um, so the, the experience of going to the final four, but then also that UNLV team, which everybody remembers is so historically great. You guys had them on the ropes again. I don't mean to bring up a bad memory, but you know, I, that's a little lost in the shuffle here all these years later. Yeah, we, we had them on the ropes. Uh, Jerry Tarkanian was scared of Kenny Anderson and he really? came out, of his, he came out of the zone. Okay. And we had Dennis Scott and Brian Oliver, but Dennis Scott, um, you know, he could shoot from anywhere. And so we were up seven at halftime, Aaron. And I told the team, I said, now they're coming out of the zone. They're going to come after us. 
And sure enough, they did. They rattled us. And Kenny Anderson picked up his fourth foul. Mm. And Kenny's still mad at me today, Aaron, for taking him out. Oh. Um, but I had to take him out. And they, they, they took it. They, 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 we lost their momentum. Sure. And, uh, but we did have him on the ropes. And I, I regret that, you know, that Kenny got that fourth foul. And maybe, maybe I should have kept him in there. But Kenny, you know, Kenny's had, he's been through a lot. He's had some personal problems. But he's the head coach at Fisk University today. And he's got a beautiful wife and family, and he's doing well. Uh, but he, if you bring up the UNLV game, that's the first thing he said. You should have left me in the game. You should have left me in the game. How um, – I know it's, it's a painful memory because you, you didn't win, but take us through because that is the pinnacle for a college coach, and by that point you had been in it 20-plus years. I mean, we've all – for people who haven't been to the Final Four, but a lot, a lot of people listening have or know about it. There's coaches that listen to this the dream is always to kind of walk through that tunnel on Friday for people who don't know there's an open practice where the public can come enjoy and, and all that stuff. I mean, as a coach, how cool was it where you started with Georgia tech to have that weekend where you're part of the conversation, you're walking through that door. It's funny. I remember last year at the final four, Chris Beard, the Texas tech coach said, uh, you know, they, they, they keep telling me it's my first Final Four. He said, I come every year. He's like, I'm just usually, uh, you know, he said, I started sleeping on the floor with my buddies 30 years ago. But I've, I've been here every year. This is just the first time that I'm playing. Uh, how cool was it to, to get to walk out of that tunnel on Friday and Saturday uh, in the lead up to those games? Oh, it was fantastic. Uh, I, my father passed away at Christmas time, But my college coach, uh, he came out and walked, we walked out together on, uh, on um, what do you call, I think it was uh, Friday for practice. And, and that was cool having Coach McGuire with me. Um, you know, it wasn't as crazy then as it is now. We did not play in the Dome. I think we were one of That's the right. last games. Uh, we played in Denver. Yeah. And uh, we were one of the last Final Fours to play, uh, you know, in a regular arena. Right, but Aaron, you can't beat it. It's a fantastic feeling. Um, you know, you're, you you get wrapped up. It's a lot of distractions, uh, but you know the the feeling to get there. And you got to be lucky, Aaron. I was lucky to get there. In the mm -hmm. second round, we had to beat Shaquille O'Neal in LSU. Wow, and we were down 19. And then um, Tom Izzo was a young assistant sitting with Judd Heacote on Michigan State. Okay, and um. You know, we were down two, and uh, they missed a one-on-one. And Kenny Anderson came running down. I kept on saying, shoot it, shoot it. He finally shot it, and it went in. Hmm. And everybody went crazy, but the officials, I looked at the officials, and I knew it was going to be a close call. And they came over to me, and they said, Bobby, um, we got a problem. Uh, we don't think it was a three-point shot. We think his foot was on the line. And I said, fine, no problem. <laughs> Let's go into overtime. But, uh, you know, God bless Judd Heacote. Every time he saw me after that, he'd give me a hard time. And Tom Izzo always, you know, always talked about that game. And then Minnesota, uh, they had a shot to beat us at the buzzer. And Clem Haskins was the head coach. So you've got to be lucky. Yeah. And um, – and there's a lot of great coaches, Aaron, who have never been to the Final Four. And it's unfortunate 
that, you know, that's the way we're graded on national championships, final four, because that's the way it is. Um, so when you get there, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Well, and, and that's what I was going to ask you, take us through, um, because I think that, I don't think people, the casual person realizes how lucky you have to be. You know, I, I hear all the time, um, you know, how does John Calipari only have one national championship? How does Sean Miller never get to the final four when he always has a good team? And it's like, you know, every coach, I mean, you know, even the, the, the legends, I mean, you know, I talked to Jim Calhoun probably uh, three, four months ago, and he talks about the two, three years that he didn't get there when he thought he had a team that was good enough to do it, not necessarily the teams that won. The teams that stick out to him are the ones that were good enough to do it that weren't able to. And I think that the casual fan doesn't realize to win six single elimination games, I mean, twisted ankle, foul, Kenny Anderson's foul. I mean, I don't, it's, it's crazy what goes into having success in that tournament. It, it really is. And, you know, I felt like we should have been there two or three times. And had we done that, I think we would have won a national championship at least once. But, you know, of course, John Wooden has the most at 10 national championship. And Coach K, uh, you know, Coach Wooden, Coach K, they kind of spoiled it. They kind of they kind of made it look easy yeah. uh, winning so many championships. You know, usually the number would be two or three the most, not 10, not five. You know, so that um, people don't realize, you know, how everything's got to fall in order uh, to get there. Very good. You mentioned Stefan Marbury a few months, a few minutes ago. Uh, he's a guy I think most basketball fans know. They remember he was with you for one year. I mean, I assume it was the the New York City connections. But uh, how did he? How did? How was he? The, another one that ended up from New York City to to Atlanta. Well, he idolized um, Kenny Anderson. Yeah. yeah, I did not do a great job recruiting Stefan. Hmm. Uh, but we, we had a really good opportunity for him. He narrowed it down, I think, basically to Syracuse. UNLV might have been in there and Georgia Tech. And um, his high school coach, um, Bobby Hartstein, called me one day and he said, you know, if you want this kid, you're still in the league and you better get going. So I flew up to Brooklyn and uh, went over to his um, Coney Island, uh, you know, where the famous roller coaster is. And it was unique. His family, you know, there's a, there's a documentary out right now about Stefan Marbury. I encourage people to look at it. Um, of course, he, he made the big move of going to China, and that turned out to be a great move for him. Uh, but it's a good it's a good documentary, Aaron. And um, I only coached him for uh, about six months, but he was a good kid. He went to class every day, and he could he could really really score the basketball. Yeah, have you taught? I mean, how? I, I guess I haven't seen the documentary yet, but it is kind of surreal, like how his career has played out. Are you? How many of your guys are you still in touch with? I mean, do you still talk to your guys all the time? Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I talk to them. Um, I, I always hope that, you know, if they have any problems, that they feel free to call me. Um, last year, Dennis Scott, Brian Oliver, I saw we all went to Kenny Anderson. He, uh, he had a big thing in Nashville uh, for the opening of his season. Every year I try to go back to the Georgia Tech reunion where everybody comes back. 
Um, so, yeah, I love talking to my former players, and I love when they call. Very good. Are you following Coach Passner's team? I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him a few weeks ago, I think they have a chance to be really good this year. They finished fifth in the ACC, bring back essentially everybody. They do lose maybe their best big guy, but it seems like he's kind of got things going in the right direction for them as well going into 2021. Yeah, I, I did not know Josh personally, but um, he worked for Lute Olson, and I was a Lute's assistant in the World Games. And Luke called me and told me great things about Josh and asked me to keep an eye out for him. Uh, he had an incredible first year, Aaron. You know, usually your first year, you're not supposed to, uh, to win that many games. And you got to give credit to Brian Gregory. Brian Gregory left him. Um, you know, Josh Okogie turned out to be ACC Rookie of the Year. And Ben Lammers, nobody, nobody knew how good Lammers was. So Josh um, – really capitalized on that and had an incredible year. Um, and then, you know, he went through some tough times, particularly, um, you know, when he got to know that, that family. And, um, and that really, really bothered him. I think, I think it took a lot away from his coaching. And, um, you know, I feel like now it's all behind him. I totally agree with you. He had a great year last year when there was a lot of pressure on him. He finished fifth in the ACC. He has four starters back. He has a great backcourt coming back, maybe the best in the ACC. Another New York kid. And, of course, um, the other one's from Florida. And um, everybody at Georgia Tech is excited. They're excited about the upcoming season. Of course, you know, we got to first deal with the virus. Sure. But um, I, I, think this is a, uh, I think this could be Josh's year. And he can make a lot of noise. I thought he made a lot of noise last year. And um, he's got a lot of momentum coming into this year. Very good. Anything? Oh, you, you are writing a book. Uh, we're going to have you back on to talk in a little bit. How's the book writing process coming? Well, it's great. You know, you know, English is not my, um, you know, <laughs> it's, you know I, I just write. I write okay. and, and I make a lot of um, literary mistakes um in terms of you know new paragraphs and things like that and so but you know people can correct that uh, my i feel like it's important that i just write and write what happened and right now i'm a senior at south carolina i'm about to have my first um life crisis okay when we lose that game i talked about and then i i'll take it to a publisher and i'll see where he wants to go with it but what's important to me is that what I write is accurate. That, that's very, very important to me. And then um, hopefully, you know, I would love for it to be where a book where a young man could open it up, a player, and, um, and see what I went through as a player. And then as a coach, I would hope a young coach, I uh, have not got into the coaching aspect of it yet, but I hope uh, a coach could open the book up and, and just read, and he will learn a lot. I, I love to read biographies. Mm -hmm. When I got into coaching, I read every book by Bobby Knight, by Yubi Brown, by John Wooden, by Dean Smith. You know, some of them were a little boring because <laughs> of the biography part, but you could learn so much, so much. Of course, when I was coaching, I loved, you know, the X and O books about what offense, you know, Bobby Knight would write a book called uh, Motion Offense. Uh, he, would call, he would write a book called um, 
you know, something about defense. And I love those books. I, I would love, I would read those books two or three times. And then I would try to apply some of the princi principles uh, with my team. So I encourage reading. I, I think you can learn so much from it. Who's got a great biography not related to sports that you really enjoy reading time and time again? Oh, boy. Or it could be sports, but not, not like the obvious basketball ones. Well, I love reading about John F. Kennedy. Okay. Uh, you know, um, I loved uh, reading about, of course, Churchill, Churchill's biographies are, are always great. Um, but, you know, you could pick them. You could pick them. There's so many out there. And um, they're expensive, some of them. But you could go to Amazon and get a used one. And they're absolutely incredible when you read about some of these people's lives. It's, it's, it's really, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Very good. I, I don't really have anything else for you. Is there anything else from your career, anything that we, we haven't hit on or that fans that are Georgia no. Tech? No? I thought no, we were if, you, if, you, if you run into John Sally or Sonny Vaccaro, well, uh, please tell him I said hello. Uh, they, those two people were very important people in my life. Sonny gave me my first contract uh, at Nike. And John Sally, again, he's one of the brightest young men. He graduated in four years at Georgia Tech. And then he went out to, to L.A., and I don't see much of him. But I'm very proud of him, and I hope, I hope he's doing well. And I hope Sonny, Sonny's had some health issues. Yeah. So I hope both those guys are doing well. Yeah, I talked to Sonny about a year ago when uh, R.J. Hampton went overseas, and there was a few things going on, and he was really great with his time. And he, he is a, uh, a basketball uh, oh. savant as far as – memories and I saw this kid at this gym and all that kind of stuff so it was a really fun interview uh and he was great he was gracious with his time so I enjoyed talking to him but haven't probably spoken to him since so. okay Aaron well I enjoyed this anatomy of an ad subconsciously trigger emotions through music perfect Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.